Okay, it's time to look into the Word. We're going to look at the living Word, Jesus, and see where He is in this passage this morning. Our sermon text is Philippians 1, verses 19 through 26, and I've entitled it, Paul's Great Ambition. So ambition is an interesting word, isn't it? What does it really mean? Well, it's a strong desire to do or achieve something typically requiring determination and hard work. So it's something you really care about, something that you're going to really put your every uh, cell of your body into accomplishing, something you're thinking about every day, something you're going to accomplish, something that's worth doing in your eyes. And so we find the Apostle Paul always had great ambition. Even before he became a Christian, he had great ambition. He wanted to be the greatest Jewish religious leader and scholar of his time. He was filled with that ambition as he traveled along the Damascus Road to persecute the Christians there so he could impress the religious leaders that were back in Jerusalem. His ambition was to make his name great. He wanted honor power and personal glory. Persecuting Christians was just one more step in gaining that self-glory that he was after. And this is a issue that we all have. See, all of us want some sort of self-glory going on. We just don't think about it that way. But we want to be great. And some have small ambition, some others have great ambition. But we all want to be recognized. We all want to have some sort of self-glory going on. And so this is where Paul was as he was walking along that Damascus road. And then Jesus introduced himself. And then everything changed for Paul, except his great ambition. It was just what was the focus of his great ambition. That's what changed. So no longer was he focused on his own self-glory anymore. His new great ambition was something that was burning bright for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the building of God's kingdom. He became single-eyed, single-focused on that all the time. That's his great ambition. And that should be our great ambition. And as we think about this, as we unfold this passage this morning, I would encourage you to think about, is that your great ambition or are there other things that are your great ambition? And I think everybody in here who loves the Lord would say it's mixed. Some moments we've got great ambition according to proclaiming the gospel and word and deed. Other times we have a desire to earn our own self-glory. So we're mixed. And we need to know that. We need to know when we're going which direction. And it's interesting and very ironic that as Paul began to really focus on the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and instead of bringing glory to himself, bringing glory to Christ, the irony in that was his name became more well-known. Now we've got it in the scriptures. One of the most famous men in history. And it came through denying his own self-glory and trying to gain Christ's glory. So we're going to look at this in a little more detail. And uh, so 
We're also going to see what Paul was certain about and what he was uncertain about. And then, again, we need to be thinking about sort of the undercurrent here. What is our great ambition? What am I living for on Wednesday morning? Okay, please stand, and we'll read the Word of God. Now, as we read this, what's in the bulletin is from the ESV, English Standard Version. And I have uh, replaced three words in this passage with the literal meaning from the Greek, because I think when we do that, it helps us to understand what the context is and how to apply it to our lives. So I will, I will mention these words as we read through it so you'll know exactly what I've done. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so what you have here is instead of deliverance, I've put in the word the salvation. So it's deliverance from evil, but the idea is salvation here. We're going to look at that in more detail. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all disappointed. So I'm replacing the word ashamed, which had a different meaning back when um, it was used in different earlier years. So when we put the word then disappointed, it makes a whole lot more sense for us today to understand that. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be enlarged. The word here is honored, but enlarged means to be growing within us, increasing, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, but that is far, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue to be with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come here in your midst to worship you and to adore you and to be built up by your word and to see and understand our own hearts in a deeper way. So I pray you'd help us to open our, our hearts this morning for your word and help us to apply it. Help us to understand what you're speaking to each one. Each one of us is a little different this morning. So this word might get applied in different hearts, different ways, but we look to you to know how to expertly apply this word to each heart that's here this morning. And we thank you in that, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's look at the first point on our outline. Salvation, past, present, and future. So in verse 19, Paul said, this will turn out for my salvation. But Paul's focus was on eternity. The idea of the deliverance part, right? The salvation is complete. So when we look at salvation being past, present, and future, we look at being justified by faith in Christ as being in the past. He's already done that over 2,000 years ago. We know that through the power of the Holy Spirit that we're being sanctified now. That's in the present. 
And we know that we will be glorified when Christ returns in the future. So it's a beautiful and a glorious thing that Paul's thinking about, but he's really focusing on the future here in this passage. So Paul was rejoicing over what God had done, what God was doing, but most importantly, what the future held for him, in which case he's going to be glorified. And so that's the, that's the focus then as we're looking at this text. So that brings us to our second point, the certainty of Paul's future salvation. So in verse 19, once again, Paul was rejoicing that the gospel of Jesus Christ was being proclaimed and that the kingdom of God was advancing. He's excited about that. But in a grander, more inclusive and sweeping way, he's referring back to verse 6. If you remember what that is, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So it's all about what God is doing. It's all about grace. It's not what I'm earning, not what I'm trying to figure out. God is working in me and changing me, and there's going to be a completion of that when Christ returns. So until that day, Paul knew that the Holy Spirit was at work in whatever circumstances that he found himself, using these different events to increase Christ's likeness in him, including using the Roman pastors who were trying to hurt him that we looked at last week. So he figured out how to rely on Christ for that. And so in verse 20, Paul writes this. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be disappointed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be enlarged in my body. So Paul was saying that he was certain about what Christ was going to do for him. So each day as he approached any problem, there was absolutely no possibility that he wouldn't be glorified. There's absolutely no possibility that Christ would not return. Those are cast in concrete. They're unshakable in him. And so that's what governed his thinking as he was uh, seeing the gracious work of Jesus in and through him. And so it's an amazing thing. So that's what we need to do as well. So is that what you're looking at when you're going through some hard things? Maybe some of you this morning probably are going through some hard things. Well, are you putting your focus and your understanding on Christ and realizing that those hard things, he's going to work with you, bring grace into that situation and make it a victory in God's eyes? Do you believe that? See, that's the question. Do you have faith for that? See, Paul did. And so we need to increase that ability in ourselves so that as we're going through those hard times, our reliance is not in our own strength, trying to get out of those trials, Sometimes God wants us to stay in those trials. Sometimes he wants us to, to be delivered immediately. But the point is our eyes are on God, on Christ, and realizing that he's in charge. He's our Lord and our Savior, and he's overseeing all these things. And we can trust him because he went to the cross for us. He couldn't give any more than he gave. He's already proven how much he loves us. And so verse 19 says that Paul is certain based on two things. And these are interesting. Intercessory prayers of the saints. That's us, right? We pray for one another. And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So we see two things operating here. One is man's side of it. Are we praying for one another? And the other is prayers of the Holy Spirit. And so both of these things 
are very important. And so we see, for instance, in Romans 8.26, Paul writes this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is amazing. This is amazing when you think about what's going on here. It's important that we pray. Paul's telling us we should pray. And our confidence, though, is that when our prayers are not in line with the Word of God, which sometimes they're not, we don't always know the mind of God, but the Spirit does. And so it says here that the Holy Spirit prayerfully intercedes according to God's will. <laughs> wow! So that means that I know for sure that God himself, God the Holy Spirit, is praying to God the Father for my best. That's going on. How often do we think about that? See, this is not conditional on my action or my words or my thinking. God's going to do this no matter what by grace. That's the confidence you should have every single day. And also we should add to that the prayers of the saints interceding for one another. This is important. Because we see in Revelation, we get this picture, this image is a beautiful picture. It says that there's like this pot of incense up there that contains the prayers of the saints. And as that pot of incense is burning, it's like a sweet smell that's wafting up into the nostrils of God. That means God really likes that. <laughs> He's hearing it. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. This is what's going on with your prayers when you're lifting up intercessory prayers for one another. Isn't that beautiful? You know, how often do we think about that? You know, sometimes we get, get in a place where it's hard to even pray for anybody else. You know, we just forget or things like that. But, but these are things that God values and are meaningful in the lives of each other in this body. As Paul's great ambition of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ took place, he knew that Christ would be enlarged in his body, whether by life or by death. So what does Paul have in mind here? You know, it's interesting to think about this, right? Let's dig a little deeper and see what is he really getting down to? Well, let's look and see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. This will help us out a little bit. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So first of all, it says that the body is what? Temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in the body of Christ. So when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit's already there. Body of Christ has been around since Pentecost. And so when you get saved, it says that the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the already existing body of Christ, where the Holy Spirit is. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, if you want to look it up. So it's beautiful. And so how do sinful desires then rise in our hearts? The Holy Spirit's there. But we have a sin nature as well, right? 
So how then do we get tempted? How do desires to sin rise up in our hearts? It's through our body. Think about your eyes. One of the major ways that temptation comes into our lives, into our hearts, into our bodies, is by what we see. What we see. It can be sexual, it can be greedy, can be things that are large houses or cars or whatever. Whatever our eyes see and they, you want that more than you want Christ, that's how it gets in there, you see it. So you have to ask yourself, what are you, what are you seeing every day? Because that's where the temptations start. If you don't see it, you're not gonna have that temptation rising in your heart. And so, as we become aware then, as we're watching stuff that we probably shouldn't be watching, we're seeing things we shouldn't be seeing and wanting those more than we want Christ, then we've got to be aware then of what's going on and then we take that to the Lord in repentance and faith. And we ask God to help us to turn our eyes away from that. You know, parents are pretty good at watching what our kids are watching, but what are we watching? What is it that we want that drives us, that desire, that epithumia in Greek, that drives us and controls us? We want that more than we want Christ. And so we need to be aware of that and ask for help. Because there's two, two things that are going on here, prayers of the saints. So tell somebody, hey, I'm struggling with this. I'm looking at stuff I shouldn't be looking at. Well, usually that's the last thing you're going to tell anybody. But there should be people in your life you feel safe with where you can say, hey, you know what? I'm struggling with that. Would you please help me? Would you please pray for me? But again, that's usually the last thing we're going to reveal to other people. But that's not the way God has. He says, get the help from the saints. Be accountable. This is exactly what needs to shed the light of Christ. The, the glory of Christ needs to be shining on that. Bring the light on it because it's living in the darkness in your heart. It's not going to go away if it's still in the darkness. It's got to be brought into the light. And so another part of our body that's very dangerous is our tongues. James 3, 9 and 10 says, With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. If there's anybody in here who's not misused their tongue, please raise their hand right now. So we're all guilty of this, right? We need to be honest about these things. So be a list here for a week if you just ask my wife, you know, how many times I've misused my tongue. Just uh, all the time. And so we've got to be careful about how we use our tongues, that so we're not cursing other people, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, because that's who's being identified here. People who are made in the likeness of God. We're busy judging each other. That's the truth, so what do we do about that? Once again, we bring it before other brothers and sisters in Christ. We bring it ourselves before Christ. We repent. 
And so between these prayers and, and the repentance that we're doing, that turns loose the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in the body of Christ. When I repent, I don't know how to change my heart, but God does. The power of the Holy Spirit lives within me to know how to change the desires of my heart. So you're unleashing the power of God in your heart to grow in Christ-likeness. It's beautiful. It's just hard to do because we don't want to admit. When our tongues and our eyes are leading us through them to temptation to sin. So Paul was certain that the prayers of the saints and the prayers of the Holy Spirit were at work within him and developing that Christ-like character, just like we can be certain of that this morning. So if you need more faith, ask God for more faith to believe this. He understands, he knows. He knows exactly where you are right now. There's nothing hidden from him. <laughs> And he loves us anyway. <laughs> but this is how we can help each other. And so our dependence and our knowledge is the fact that God will do this. So that's why we want to worship him and adore him. That he works through all of this. He sees all of it that we're doing. And that he is going to bring us into eternity. And that's what Paul's saying. That's what he's leading to, right? So that brings us to our third point in our outline. The uncertainty of our present life. Paul's hope for his completed salvation was certain, but until Jesus returned, he was uncertain of the date of Jesus' return or whether he would live or die in prison. So those two things were uncertain for him. So Paul was faced with two choices, he says, life or death. Here we get a wonderful glimpse into Paul's soul as we see how he thinks and understands this is what we want to grow in and understand how Paul thinks because we want to think the same way he's thinking. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So what does that say? It says that Paul thinks in terms of a win-win. Paul's not going to lose on either side. There's not a bad choice. There's not a wrong choice. There's not a sinful choice here. It's a win-win. Either way, he's going to be blessed. If he died, it meant that he would immediately go into the presence of Jesus. What a beautiful thing that would be. His suffering would end. He wouldn't have a sin nature any longer. He wouldn't be sinned against any longer. He'd be in the presence of perfect love. On the other hand, if he lived, it meant that he would continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and see the advancement of the kingdom. And so he would have fruitful labor that would result but it would include more suffering. So is he willing to suffer in order that others might be blessed? And that's the question we have too, isn't it? Are we willing to suffer that others might be blessed? And so Paul says if the choice was left up to him, Paul says it was far better to die. Far better. It's not like an equal choice. Far better from an individual personal suffering standpoint because his suffering would end. Well, that's kind of interesting. How many of us this morning want to die? Even though you know you're going to go into the presence of the Lord. 
How many are saying, I, I want to die and I want to do that? I've known some wonderful Christian people close to death, totally scared, totally scared. And these are people that love the Lord, not just one or two. I would say most of us in here this morning don't want to die when it comes down to the truth. So why did Paul say it was far better to die? Well, in addition to being free from evil, having Christ's likeness, and having fellowship with Christ forever, he knew he would enjoy a glorious and wonderful heavenly experience. And dear brothers and sisters, we don't think about heaven enough. We don't think about what's coming enough. We're so busy, caught up with our daily lives, which is normal. It's not, don't hear that as being a negative. We just don't. It's, we're trying to get our families fed and all kinds of other things just getting through each day. But I think it would help if I take just a moment and read Hebrews 12, 20 through 24. Give us a glimpse of some of what these heavenly experiences are going to look like. That's Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Being in heaven is going to be far more exciting than you can imagine or think. It's going to be glorious and wonderful. Jesus will be there in person, it says. God the Father will be there. We'll see them. We'll see innumerable angels. We don't even know if we've seen angels. The Bible says that some of us have, but we didn't know it. But we'll see innumerable angels. A heavenly festival will be taking place. Wonderful banquet of the Lamb will be happening. And you're going to be there in the midst of it. You're not going to be sitting in the stands watching a football game going on down in the field. You're going to be on the field. You're going to be in the midst of all that's taking place. It's going to be so good. I hope that excites you as you think about that. This is what your future holds. And it can't be taken away from you. It's yours. So it'll be far better for Paul and us to die and be with the Lord and not suffer anymore. But I do want to caution you on one thing. That does not mean that you should wish to die. We're not talking about suicide here, but we're saying in this win-win situation, given equal choice, it's going to be far better to be with the Lord. And we can look forward to that. Because Paul has also said, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he's thinking about other people, just like Jesus came to die for us. So Paul's thinking like Jesus thought. He wants to serve others, and he's willing to continue to suffer in order for that to happen. So his great ambition in this life would continue to control him, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the kingdom. 
single-eyed. So in the midst of uncertainty, Paul always kept his mind and heart centered on what was certain. And that's what governed his thinking. That's what controlled him in the midst of trial. He wants all of us to know that Jesus' reward of heaven cannot be taken away. This is what we need to do. Keep our eyes on the Lord, a certainty. So that's why Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And his uncertainty, Paul said, this is a win-win solution for me. Now I'd like to read an excerpt from a letter I received from my 37-year-old niece who lives with Diane and me in Northern Virginia right now and who's running a ministry called Foreign Soils where she trains Christian military wives to share the gospel in foreign lands when they're deployed with their husbands. She's probably one of the godliest women I know. I don't agree with everything she has in terms of doctrine, but she's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, so we can agree on that. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful. But I want to read this letter to you so you see that there's somebody that's living out this pretty close to what Paul's talking about. So she wrote this seven years ago. I quit my job as a pediatric intensive care nurse because I was confronted with cruelty and evil, the suffering of innocent infants and death. I struggled and failed to see God's goodness. I often wept over the lives that were lost and the cruelty these children suffered. In the midst of this, I moved to Harlem and New York City to train for being a missionary. I was not at my best and struggled with depression as I got used to a new home and new acquaintances and grieved the losses from the pediatric ICU. Four months into my training, the day after my grandfather died, I had an evaluation with the program leaders. They liked what I did, but not who I was. And they criticized me harshly for problematic personality flaws. I left that meeting and walked to the nearest park. I sat on a bench, and as the rain beat down, I huddled under my umbrella and cried. I went over everything they said and more faults that they hadn't mentioned and berated myself and wished pain on myself, hoping that somehow I could be better. I regretted that I wasn't someone who was easier to love and get along with. I cried until the rain turned to ice. The next day, I got a cold. A couple of days after that, I had my first gastroparesis symptoms, which is painful stomach paralysis. My first couple of years with gastroparesis were very dark. It seemed like God had abandoned me. Life as I had known it disappeared, and I felt like I had lost everything. A couple nights later, I was praying and admitted to God that I wasn't sure if I still wanted to be a Christian. I definitely believed in him, but I hated the consequences of being a Christian. If following God meant suffering and pain, count me out. God responded by loving me, not striking me with a lightning bolt. In many little ways, he showed me his love for me. I repented. I am sharing all this because in the wee hours of my 33rd birthday, I repented again for the harm I had wished on myself years ago. I thank God for my personality and the way he has individually fashioned my heart. Then I looked back on old journals. I saw prayers I prayed before I came down with my first chronic condition. I saw prayers asking for humility, 
prayers that I would know God better and hope in Him. I saw prayers after I became sick, prayers crying out for relief of pain and wondering if I had anything to hope for in the future. And in the wee hours of my birthday, I cried because God is so good. He answered those prayers. He has given me hope and joy. Many days he has given relief of pain. He has surrounded me with loving people who help care for me when I can't care for myself. He has given me purpose and used me. God hasn't healed me physically yet, but he has healed my heart and blessed me beyond what I could have imagined in those dark times. She loves the Lord. She's proclaiming the gospel and she's advancing the kingdom of God. And she's humble. So our niece found her great ambition too. She's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she's training others to do the same. Like Paul, she's found a better reason and motive for living than she had before. It's no longer her selfish desires, thinking how great a missionary she'll be. It's a matter of pointing to Christ, knowing that he's equipped her to do that which she's doing now, bringing glory to God. She's living for Christ, not her own glory. This is why Paul said, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Fruitful labor is being accomplished through her, just like it was through Paul. And may our hearts rejoice in doing the same. This is a big challenge. May we have the same great ambition. Because when we do, when we ask God to do that, there might be a few things that he's going to have to lop off out of our lives. Some things that are taking us away from him so that we can be focused solely on his glory, on proclaiming what he has done. And others will hear, and fruitfulness will come as a result. I encourage you to ask to ask God to help you to make your great ambition also the same. If it's not, ask for intercessory prayers from the saints and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to pray perfectly for you. Jesus loves you. He delights in you and he's at work in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of Paul. We thank you for the word that you've brought through him. And Lord, we need grace in our time of need because there's a part of us that doesn't want to suffer and there's a part of us that doesn't want to change. So help us with that. May you continue to move in our hearts and bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.